0: Welcome and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, we're told if you change the truths of the gospel, you end up with a false gospel. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Abraham and David Saved by Faith.
1: you to join me in Romans chapter four. I want to read the first 12 verses here, pray, and then we'll, we'll study through this section to see some more of the points that God's making here. So begin with me in verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. But while uncircumcised, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father, Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, um, every, every word, every phrase, every sentence of what you have spoken from heaven, it's true, it's pure, it's good, we need it, and it's powerful. Every single truth that you communicate, oh God, will bring our soul to joy, will bring our soul to know you, see you, understand your ways, understand your will for us, and how you have brought about your greatest work of history, the saving of souls through your son, Jesus Christ. I ask God that this morning that you will help us. Please give our minds the ability to think and to, Lord, interpret rightly, to to see your truth, to not get it mixed up and jumbled, O Lord, but Father, show us with clarity But God, going beyond just even mentally understanding, please bring us, oh God, then to be changed by your truths. Father, I I pray, enlighten, shed light on your word. Open eyes, open ears, stir hearts. Please protect this time, even from physical distraction. Give us the ability to to think and lean in. Please capture our attention, but I also ask, oh God, capture our affection. I pray that every single heart in here will be affected. Lord, that those of us that have trusted Christ, that you use this to Further instruct us, Lord, so that we see more clearly and go deeper into your truths. And Father, any in the room that has not yet turned, not yet embraced Christ, not yet understood how to get eternal life. I pray, God, that today that happens. And I pray that in this room, miracles will happen, souls be saved, oh God. So please bring this about. Have mercy on us and all of the many things that need to happen Help me to teach and only what's right and true. We pray these things through the name of Jesus. Amen. The gospel is always without a moment's rest, under attack. Satan wants to distort the message of Christ because when he distorts the message, it's like distorting the map that leads us to eternal life. Imagine your child had some rare sickness, only one cure in the world known. There was only one hospital on the planet that was specializing in this rare disease that your child had. Imagine that they had a 100% success rate at this hospital. You get your child there, they live. You don't, they die. But you have no idea where it is. You would need a map. You would need... GPS coordinates to get there by your phone. But now imagine that you had an enemy. An enemy who hated you with such intensity that he actually went to an elaborate conspiracy in order to try to keep you from reaching this destination. He actually went and printed distorted maps That showed the wrong directions to get there. He hacked your phones, GPS, and put in wrong coordinates. Doing all of this elaborate work just to keep your child from getting that cure. Friend, the enemy of your souls hates your guts. And he hates every soul made in the image of God. He despises the glory of God. He wants all attention looking away from the one to whom it belongs. Wants our attention on all the thousands of distractions. And never stops working to distort the map that leads us to eternal life. That map, that message of the Bible that shows us here is how you can be right with God. Here is how you can have eternal life. That's the message that the Bible calls the gospel. The gospel is that most central message of the Bible. It's the most important message that you need. How can I be right with the living God? How can I have eternal life? The enemy of your soul never stops working to distort the message. He's been incredibly successful all over the world to the point that there are even those who show up to church and call themselves Christians and think that they have the right map as they speak and hear from their leaders and such when the reality is the message has been distorted. It's so why we have to be precise in matters of the gospel we we never stop hearing from the world and even from some of those christian groups this constant message maybe even occasionally some of your thoughts as you hear us week after week belaboring and and sometimes wording sentences very carefully with great details and precision maybe you sometimes think what who cares you know all that matters in the end is you know just that you love god we're all Together, we're all okay. But if you think that, for those who say that, then friends, a couple of things. Number one, the great pains that God goes to In these chapters that we've been reading where he is going to great lengths to make these truths clear. So much so that in this very chapter, six times in this chapter, it is explained to us this message that salvation comes by faith. We're shown six examples of that and over and over again, we've got these passages. What you're saying to God is, come on, God, don't you get it that we're all okay? If we disagree with him, we need to rethink what we think. But there's also this. To say things like that is like saying of the recipe for fire. You know, how do you get fire? Well, fuel, heat, and oxygen. But somebody comes along and goes, ah, you guys are being so narrow. So you guys think it's oxygen. They over here think it's carbon dioxide. Who cares? Who cares? Because you don't get fire if you change the recipe. And what scripture tells us is if you change the message of the gospel, then it's a distorted message. The Bible calls it a false gospel. That's not my words. That's not our Baptist opinion or or something like this. That's the book of Galatians. You change the truths, you end up with a false gospel. This matters. There's a time where we need great precision and to insist on some things and not budge. There are times where the Bible is narrow. See, we're sometimes insulted by being called narrow. There are times where narrow is the only answer. Two plus two equals four. That's narrow. But it's the only answer. You know, we, the church need to understand when we're supposed to be narrow and when we're not, because we sometimes get that wrong too, right? There are times where the Bible gives latitude and we come up with our way of doing things and it's wrong of us where the Bible gives latitude for us to be narrow. But friends, where the Bible is precise, where the Bible is exact, where the Bible is clear, we are to be precise and exact and clear. We have an entire chapter and a half here that is very clearly articulating the truths of the gospel. And what is just amazing is as we spend our lives teaching these truths, we constantly get these confused looks of, huh, I've never heard that before. As we're in the schools and we teach the message of the gospel, we constantly see these looks of, well, that's, that's not what my pastor at church said. I'm sorry, bud. I can only tell you what the Bible said. I can only tell you what scripture says. We have an entire chapter and a half here where these truths of the gospel are being clearly articulated and then argued so as to prove them. The central idea of this passage, chapter four, has been this. The only way to be justified, and so we've spent time looking at that word, it means to be declared innocent, To be pardoned, to be made right with God, the only way to be made right with God and therefore have eternal life is through Christ by faith. That's the grace of God. And this is the emphasis that is repeated over and over again. It is by faith and not by works. God is drawing a line here and we cannot budge from that line by faith, not by by works. And then he argues that, argues it using uh, multiple examples, even from the Old Testament. And I just want to, I just want to, I just want to spell this out as clearly as I possibly can. I want to ask you this question right now. Do you believe that when you die, you will have eternal life with God in the kingdom of heaven? Do you believe that? If you answer yes, because I mean, most everybody does, whether it's a legitimate yes or not, you you answer yes. Why do you think that? If in your mind right now, you have some reason because you would say, well, because I'm a good person or because I do good things or I've obeyed God a lot, or I go to church a lot, or I've done these religious things that I was told to do. I was baptized. I had this communion. I did this ceremony. I did this. Right. If you imagine that whenever you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? That's not the question he's going to ask, but imagine that he did. If he were to ask you, why should I let you in? If you imagine that you bring something in your hands that you achieve then listen to me very carefully. You do not understand Christianity. I don't say that to be mean. I say that to warn you and wake you. The message of the gospel is, you have nothing that you can bring to God that he needs or then owes you eternal life. There are no works, no religious deeds, no righteousness that you can acquire or earn where you bring to God and pay your way in. The message of the gospel is that by grace, as a gift, in a moment, God will give the blessing of being made right with him, forgiven of your sins and eternal life. It's not a gradual, I get closer to heaven thing. It is not I piling up weight kind of thing. It is all in a moment at the moment of trusting in Christ. That's the argument being made here in this whole section. This matters. I pointed out to you that this chapter makes seven main points. Uh, we've walked through the first two thus far. They were this. Number one was uh, justification by faith alone was how sinners were brought to peace with God in the Old Testament. Secondly, we saw justification by faith alone is proven by God saving Abraham. And then if you remember last Sunday, we spent the whole Sunday just looking at one subpoint under that point. This phrase that's repeated 11 times in this passage of what it means to be credited as righteous Well, today we're ready for the next two points made in the passage. So three and four, here they are. Number three, justification by faith alone is proven by God saving David. And then number four, justification by faith alone is proven by circumcision. So let's spend our time this morning working through the verses to see the logical arguments being made here. So what has happened is a proposal was made, justified by faith, and now there are six, uh, six arguments made, six examples from the Old Testament given. And then the last point is it's, it's applied to us. So that's, that's the seventh point. That's, that's, that's all we're doing. That's what's happening here in this passage. So number three, this is proven by what God has done with David. So the point has been made here throughout the book. Um, when we started in chapter one and we looked at those uh, verses 16 and 17, the thesis verses for the book, we saw uh, basically the God tell us, here's what you're going to learn in the book. And among those things of the big points going to learn the book, part of it is salvation comes by faith. You get eternal life by faith. And then an argument began to build where certain parts were proven and a big reveal came in chapter three. And so like, if you look back to verse 22 of chapter three, Um, you, you see this stated again. So it says the righteousness of God. So this is we receive righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It's spoken two times there. But when that point would have been made, one of the things that we see and know about the book of Romans is that it was intended to be read by unbelievers, it was intended by Paul. Now that's not his main audience, but it was intended by Paul, knowing that the Christians would use this as an argument for those that they were addressing who did not believe. We we even believe that uh, Paul understood that even Caesar would read the book of Romans. So when some of the readers would first encounter this and they heard this message of eternal life comes by faith and not by works. Some would have objected here. There is an anticipation of a question here. Many would have said, whoa, 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 here, Paul. You, you gotta be kidding me. Everybody knows that you're, you're right with God by your works. Everybody knows that it's your good deeds. It's, it's keeping the law. For the Jewish readers, they would have said, Paul, everybody knows that the Jew gets eternal life by circumcision and then by keeping the law. Everybody knows this Paul. And so really there is kind of an anticipation that's there. Some of these would have even said, Paul, that's the Bible. You get to heaven by your works. That's the Bible. You ever heard anybody say that? Say that something is in the Bible when the reality is it's nowhere to be found, but it's just popularly talked about amongst certain Christian groups. Friends, that that happens all the time. And that's that's why that phrase there in verse three is just so big. What does... The scripture say, I don't care what your rabbi says. What does the scripture say? This is so huge. In the the Jews in Paul's day, they were around the Bible all the time, but they actually spent almost all of their time studying the teachings of rabbis about the Bible rather than studying the Bible itself. Sound familiar? When they did study the Bible, they studied the parts that they wanted to and ignored the whole message. Sound familiar? They came to the Bible with beliefs that they already held and then tried to find proof text verses to sound like it was saying what they were saying, tried to bring their beliefs and push them onto the Bible. Sound familiar? This is the epidemic we live with. It's it's the common way of approaching the Bible. I'm just telling you, this is what sinful humans do with the Word of God. There's such the temptation to come to the Bible with things I already believe and then I try to make it fit into there. I I just want to tell you, you can believe anything you want to and somewhere you could find a verse, maybe spin the word order a little bit because people do that to make it sound like the Bible is saying what you want it to say. That's why we have a gazillion religious lunatics. But the only honest way The only honest way to study the Bible is to come to the scriptures, the word of God, not saying, well, I got to find where it says what I already believe, but to say, what does the Bible say on this and let, let it speak to us, draw out what it says rather than push in what we believe. This is gonna be really important as we talk through some of the things that we do today. We let the word speak to us. Chapter four is God inspiring Paul to use the Old Testament scriptures, take six Old Testament examples and prove that what he is saying is not new. This is what has been in the Bible all along. To say it simply, you get eternal life by faith in Jesus. We've already seen him use Abraham as an example. That happened in verse three. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, now the next example he uses is David. We see that there in verses six through eight. Under this point, there's one main truth and then then a couple smaller ones. But here's the main point that's taught. David is in heaven. David has eternal life. David is right with God. David was justified. But David is not in heaven because he was good enough. David is not in heaven because he did enough religious good deeds. David is not in heaven because he was a good boy and didn't mess up. David is in heaven because he turned to God in trust. Now, where are we shown that? Well, part of the point that's being made here in this passage, this is really cool, is that even as you read the Old Testament, That truth is taught. Now, it's not as clear as in the New Testament. The New Testament oftentimes will look back on things that happened in the Old Testament and explain them clearer, bring us deeper and, and, you know, bring some of those light bulbs like, oh, okay, I see. Now, so it's taught in the Old Testament. We're going to see that today, but the New Testament then comes back and interprets and helps us understand some more of what happens there. God does this by quoting Psalm 32. So if you look at verses seven and eight in chapter four there, verses seven and eight, somehow as you look at your Bibles, it's indented or capitalized or something showing you that this is a quote from the Old Testament. This comes from Psalm 32. Let's read it again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account Now, when you read that Psalm, you know, I don't know about you, but my mind doesn't immediately go, oh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is being taught here. That's not where my mind immediately goes. But what's being shown here, you know, just very clearly is David is rejoicing in the spirit that he's not going to hell. He's not going to hell because he has been forgiven of his sins. Uh, Psalm 32 is one of the two Psalms that David wrote after his repentance from his most grievous sin, that, that, that season of his life where he fell into the darkest of his depravity. After he came out of that, repented, he wrote two main Psalms about that, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But the point here is David sinned and God forgave him. Do you see the point in that already? You know, the, the point here is, is twofold. For one, if salvation were based on works, David ain't going to heaven. You know what I'm saying? David, David sinned in some ways that were awful. Like David didn't just have a, a grumpy day with his kids. David didn't stub his toe and accidentally let out a cuss word. I'm not trying to downplay these kinds of sins. I had a couple grumpy days this week. Feel bad about that. It's it's not a light sin. But where David went was quite a bit farther and darker than that. David sinned in those kinds of ways that get you kicked out of church, David sinned in some of those ways that the sins are ugly. You know, you know how we, we count some sins as uglier than others? They're all uglier, you know, to God than what we imagine them to be. But sometimes as parents, we get together, oh, I, you know, I got a little grumpy this week with, our, with my kids and the other parent goes, oh yeah, me too, you know, and doesn't feel all that bad. But then there are the kinds of sins that are like, I don't even want to mention with my lips that I've done these kinds of things. The ugly, because David did the ugly kinds of sins. David sinned in those ways that makes grace seem a little too extreme. David's in some, some of those ways that sometimes skeptics, whenever they learn about this part of the Bible, they throw it back in Christians' faces. They'll sometimes say things like, you know, you hypocritical Christians, you're all the time talking about how you're supposed to obey and be good. And yet your own hero, David, did this? And you're gonna call me evil? And you say he's just forgiven in heaven? It, it makes grace seem cheap. Now, it's not biblically whenever you study all of it. David's sinned in some of those ways. I, I don't know if you've ever felt this or not. I, I've, I've felt this as I was about to explain some of David to my kids. And I'm thinking if I tell them all of these horrible things that he did and then I say that he was forgiven and he's actually one of our heroes, I'm afraid that I might communicate the wrong message here. I'm afraid that I might accidentally communicate, hey, who cares? Send to your heart's desire. Just in the end, ask forgiveness and it'll all be okay. Now that's, that's misunderstanding the Bible. That's why we got to teach all of it, okay? It's why you need to also include the book of Leviticus and your family devotions and such of how bad the Lord hates sin. Blood gotta be spilt for sin. And God is not mocked. You can't just trample his grace. You can't act like that. All of that is true, but still this is true as well. With all of God's hatred for sin, still his grace is so deep and so wide. Even murderers who turn from their sin and trust in Christ are forgiven. In the book of life in heaven, next to the murderer, it reads righteous. Next to that one who turns and trust in Christ. But here's the point. David is right with God, not because he was a good boy and stayed out of trouble. He got in trouble. But David illustrates the grace of God. Listen, guys, God did this on purpose, this wasn't an accident. God ordained these things that he would publicly forgive someone who went to those kinds of extremes in order to show just how great his grace is. It is an astounding mystery of the both of these things that God hates sin with the intensity that he does and yet forgives like he does. And that's the gospel. David's life shows the truths of the gospel here well, that's the first and the most important point that is in here. David is right with God by grace through faith. Here's a second point that is made in this. It's, it's that word account in verse eight there. We made mention of this last week. There are actually three really important words used in verses seven and eight. This quote from Psalm uh, 32 there. I think account is the most important, but walk through it with me and, and see the message that's there. Verse seven, blessed are those. Now, by the way, the blessing that he's referring to here, what blessing is this? This is the ultimate blessing. You sitting here right now and you're breathing. That is the grace and kindness of God. But the blessing that we're talking about here is this ultimate blessing of being made right with God and having eternal life. The the greatest thing that God could give. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. You too have lawless deeds. I have lawless deeds we are to turn our heart from embracing those lawless deeds and turn to trust in Christ. And what we're told is blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven. That means they're erased by God. Continuing on, he says, and whose sins have been covered. That word covered makes us think back to the book of Leviticus where we're taught the principles of sacrifice there, uh, that the blood of the offering would be a a covering. The the idea there is a hiding of the shame. The idea there is that this embarrassing, this this shameful guilt that I have, it it has now been, been covered up. Have you ever had that dream where somehow you're naked in front of a whole audience of people and you long to somehow just be, Covered up. That that's the picture here. That before God our sin is more embarrassing, more shameful than um, the most embarrassing moment that you've ever had in your life, and it is glaring God in the face. And and an offering covers it. Blessed is the one whose sin has been covered. The guilt is hidden. And then verse 8. Blessed is the man whose sin. The Lord will not take into account. So you have sin, but there is a grace of God that's offered where he is willing to not count your sin against you if you look to Christ. Now, if you remember from last week, the word account there, this is this extremely important word that we spent our whole time talking about last week's, mentioned 11 times in this passage. It's that Greek word, legitsomai. So take that whole sermon and apply it to right here that that word means to credit or to impute. Sometimes it speaks to regard, to consider, to think of God is willing to not count your sins against you, to regard you as though you had not committed these sins. And then if you were to look back in the Old Testament at Psalm 32, you don't have to turn there, uh, but where the English is translated straight from the Hebrew there. Okay, so in the New Testament, we have the Hebrew translated into Greek. And then into English, does that make sense? Back in Psalm 32, if you read that, it's the Hebrew straight into the English. They have used the word impute there. Blessed is the one, the Lord will not impute iniquity. So here's what this is saying. Salvation by faith is proven in the fact that David had crimes that deserved punishment, but God did not count them against him justification by faith might be the more technical way of saying David was forgiven when he turned in faith. But, but, but let me just kind of step back here and, and show you something kind of bigger that's happening here. What that means is this, friends. As we read the Old Testament, we are constantly reading the message of the gospel. We sometimes don't recognize that it is. Like, for instance, if you're reading Psalm 51, Psalm 51 begins like this. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. As we read that, our minds maybe don't recognize gospel, 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 but that's what it is. The gospel is being preached over and over again in the Old Testament as we see the forgiveness of sins. And then we ask, how does that forgiveness come? It comes by faith and not by our works. This justification by faith was shown all through the scriptures and all over in these places. It's not just a New Testament doctrine. The gospel has been around since the book of Genesis. Now, yes, we need to know how Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. But the groundwork, the foundation of the gospel, friends, it's preached all through the Bible. The New Testament is bringing greater clarity to these things. That, all of that is some necessary truth we need to know as we study the scriptures. All right, so that was point three. Here's point four. Justification by faith alone is also proven by circumcision. All right, now let's think through this. God again anticipates a question from the readers. So we, we keep seeing that throughout the letter. Some things are being taught that were contrary to what the first hearers were used to. We see it today. And when people hear something that's contrary to what they've heard their whole lives, questions jump out. Well, wait a second, what about, what about, and the, constantly doing this, God is anticipating and then answering these questions. So, so here's a big one. Many reading this would have objected. All right, Paul, if you're telling me that works don't save, then that means that circumcision doesn't save. And if circumcision doesn't save, well, then why did God give it, Paul? Now, if you're new to the Bible, circumcision. You know, for one, us talking about it, let's just kind of recognize, might seem odd and strange to you if you're new to the Bible, that kind of thing. You may not know that this actually comes from the Bible. Circumcision is that act where a male has some of his flesh cut off. We'll just leave it there. If you need more explanation, we can do that privately after the service and things, but we'll just leave it there for right now. But what you may not know is that God actually prescribed this practice. That all the way back in the book of Genesis, God gave this as instruction. Now, this is not new covenant stuff, but it is part of old covenant stuff. We actually did a a whole sermon on this about a year ago. You can look that up from Genesis 17. And by the way, um, knowing what chapter it comes from, it is important. We're going to come back to that. Genesis 17 is where God gave the instruction, the command for Abraham to be circumcised, and then for this to be a statute that was passed down to the descendants of Abraham. God gave a very graphic and painful act to perform to picture something spiritual. If you understand that sentence, you can understand a whole lot of the Bible. God is constantly doing this. God is constantly giving um. an act to perform, a ceremony, an ordinance, some rite. And the point is not obsessing on the thing. The point is that it is teaching something spiritual. Circumcision of the flesh was meant to picture circumcision of the heart. And there are all kinds of places from the Old Testament that show that. Something external was meant to be a symbol of something internal, a picture of what was happening in their circumcision of the heart is the painful act of repentance. Because guys, true repentance ain't easy. Feels like a part of your, your life is getting ripped away from you. True repentance is to take the sins that I, my flesh, loves. I'm addicted to them. I cling to them. I order a lot of my life around these sins. Repentance is to them rip them out of my life, turn my back on them, and come to God. Every one of us have some things in our lives that repenting of them is going to feel like death. Hence, die to yourself. But... It is picturing conversion. It's picturing turning our back on rebellion and then coming to God. But like so many things that God has given throughout the millennia, sinful humans always corrupt the things of God. God gives some ordinance, some ceremony, some act, and it's meant to just very simply picture something. And and what do sinful men do? twisted into something demonic. Like you, you take the illustration of what Israel did. Do you remember in the wilderness, whenever they were uh, bitten by the venomous serp- serpents and God had Moses to raise up a bronze serpent. And he said, when anyone turns and looks at it in faith, they will be healed. Well, there were some things God was teaching there that points forward to Christ. Do you remember what they did with that? The people of Israel took it and they turned it into one of their gods. They actually later began to offer sacrifices to the block of metal. They took something God gave and twisted it into idolic and demonic places. That's a picture of what humans are always doing to the things of God. I mean, you just take everything. Take take the Lord's Supper. Look at the ways that it gets twisted and corrupted. And people come up with all of these weird things so that after, you know, about a thousand years of human corruption, it's to say... Whenever you eat it, you're eating Jesus and you get more grace in you and you get less time out of purgatory and things. Insanity. Look what has happened to baptism. You know, very simply, you know, baptism has some deep parts to it, but at at its basic level, baptism is simply a public way of showing the world. I have decided I am going to follow Christ now. I've turned to him. I've repented. He's my Lord and I'm going to obey him like Lord, publicly showing that. But look what has happened. We can actually track through history, by the way, from writings that we have um, from uh, hundreds of years ago, even going back to the second century, ways that some, not all, but some began to twist baptism into things that it was never intended to be. Very early on, you have some who began to teach that baptism is required for salvation. So like if you turned to Jesus and died on your way to get baptized, sorry, bud, you're going to hell. Baptism is required for salvation. And then it's a short step from that. Now, this is human thinking. This is, of course, not scripture. It's a short trip from that to, well, actually, baptism is what saves you. The moment you get baptism, that's the moment you receive eternal life. Well, then if that's true, what's the next step? The next step is, well, I want to baptize my babies because what if they die? I want them to go to heaven because baptism saves I want to save my baby. Do you see this? We see this in about the second to third century um, AD when the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, instituted Christianity as the official religion. He began to demand babies to be baptized because we got to make them Christians. Do you see the error here? Well, then by the time we come to Augustine, now I love Augustine and I commend him to you as a hero, but all our heroes be crazy in some way. All of them got something stupid and here was Augustine's. Augustine began to kind of surmise in his mind. And he said, all right, well, what happens to the babies that are not baptized? Because I don't think that they go to hell, but they can't go to heaven because their original sin wasn't washed away in baptism. That's what people started to believe. So then he said this, there must be some kind of in-between place between heaven and hell where the unbaptized babies go. We'll give that about a thousand years of humans thinking on and What do you get? You end up with purgatory. And then we got to have a whole elaborate system of purgatory. By the time you come to 1500, right before the reformation, you've got some of the religious leaders telling people, here's how many years in in purgatory you'll get for this sin. I mean, The whole thing is not in the Bible, but we're just keep coming up with this elaborate thing. And then there were some of those who began to say, well, actually, what we can do is, uh, we got a deal for you here. The saints of old who did all their good deeds, they, they have all these extra deeds stored up in a box in heaven. The box is called the treasury of merit. I mean, now we've named it, like it's not in the Bible, it's nowhere, just invented, but now we got a name for it. It's a treasury of merit. And if you pay us enough money, will sell you some of the good works out of that box. And the famous line from history, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. They began to write up documents. Here, you just sign your loved one's name right on the line right there, and you put your money in, bam, you just, you just bought grandpa out of purgatory. And lest you think that that kind of thing is just to the past, listen to me. Every single day in Guadalupe, Mexico, There are people who will climb a large set of stairs on their hands and knees, intentionally bloodying their knees and their hands, harming their bodies. And when they get to the top, they will light a candle, believing that they have just freed a loved one from purgatory because trace it back, trace it back, trace it back, trace it back. Where do we start? One unbiblical sentence. And do you see that by the time you're done, you got all this insanity and it all comes back to one wrong belief. My point is, this is what humans always do with the things of God. Humans are always twisting. They're always meddling. They're always corrupting the things of God. And all the while the scripture is calling out, Abraham believed God and was counted as righteous. The soul that trusts in Christ will be saved. So notice a couple things from that little illustration I used there. One is always notice how humans are twisting things to go to salvation by works. That's always where Satan is leading. Salvation by works. You make yourself righteous. There's something you can do, but also look what is done to the ordinances of God. And part of my point is to say this. Similar things had been done to circumcision. Does that make sense? The Jews of the Old Testament, not all, Some had twisted circumcision to say some crazy kinds of things as well. We've got shelves and shelves of writings from the rabbis um, that were there, and we've got them saying things that became popular like Abraham stands at the gates of hell and he will never let one circumcised man, one circumcised Jew, into hell. That was a belief. There was another rabbi who taught and said that Abraham sits at the gates of hell. And if there is a circumcised Jewish man who then left his faith and did all kinds of evil things, breaking the law of God, his circumcision was undone. And then he was sent into hell. Now, where did all that come from? Out of people's brains. This is what happens. When people make up their own religious beliefs, it gets crazy. What does the... Scripture say, that's why that's why we approach the Bible the way that we do. We draw out, we don't push in. And so now, now that you know some of those things, maybe a lot more passages of the Bible make sense. Like why Jesus had that interaction with the Pharisees where he said things like, God's able to take these stones and make children of Abraham. Just because you've been circumcised or you've been descended from a bloodline, that doesn't make you have eternal life. All of this, the, 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 the scriptures are constantly addressing this. So this is the question that the objector to the scriptures would say. You're saying works don't save, but what about circumcision? Why did God give it? Well, here, it's kind of like God turns a question around on them. Here's the question. Abraham was justified, but I ask you, when was he justified? When did that happen? All right, well, look at verses nine and 10. I know this is gonna get a little confusing because the word circumcised, uncircumcised is used like a hundred times here, but read it again. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Okay, so here's the answer. Abraham was justified. He was saved. He was made right with God. He received eternal life. He was forgiven before God instructed circumcision. And there are two big points made from that. The first one I'm just going to mention, and he's actually setting something up that he's going to come back to in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Here's the first one. Abraham was saved while he was uncircumcised And he was not technically a Jew because the Jewish people were not born yet. So that means this, Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile and was saved. Conclusion, uncircumcised Gentiles can be saved. Now this was, now you and I are like, well, duh. Well, that's because we've had the Bible. That's because we've had the New Testament. In the first century, this was highly argued. Most of the rabbis had taught God doesn't care about the Gentiles. They're just going to go to hell as fuel for the fire. salvation is only for us. And here's the scripture saying, no, God intends to save all. But we're coming back to that. But here's the next one and the most important point that's made here. Abraham was justified. He was made right with God before he was ever circumcised. Therefore, circumcision doesn't save and it's not required to be saved. The Bible does not say Abraham was circumcised and was justified. The Bible does not say Abraham obeyed God and was justified. The Bible says he believed God and was justified. The timing of this is a big deal because God is making the point that no work, no religious rite, no ceremony, no action saved him. Faith is how he was saved. Abraham is in heaven. And just like David, Abraham is in heaven by faith. And not by any works. So, do you kind of see the point there that an example is used before circumcision and then after and before the law and after? Another point's gonna be made later in the text about the law. When was the law given? More than 400 years after Abraham. This point is being made. So, faith is how you lay hold of eternal life. So, follow this out with me. When was Abraham justified? It's Genesis chapter 15. That verse that was quoted there in this passage, verse 3. That comes from Genesis 15, 6. When was circumcision given? Genesis 17. That is after. By the way, to understand some more parts of the Bible, like James 2, Isaac was offered in Genesis 22, even after all of those things. But that's for another day. 15 and 17. The difference between those two chapters, we don't actually know how long it was. But we know it has to be at least 14 years. Because in Genesis 15... Ishmael was not even conceived yet. In Genesis 17, Ishmael is 13 years old. So there's at least, you know, 13 plus the 9 months of pregnancy going on there, okay? But it really wouldn't matter if it was 5 seconds. The point is, he was saved and then God gave this religious ceremony and the point being made here is God has done all of these things on purpose in these ways to show things. There was salvation before these religious ceremonies were instituted. So then here's the obvious question. Well, if salvation was available before all these things, then why did God give these things? That's a question that's gonna come up several more times, but the circumcision one is answered right here. And here's how it's answered. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe. And then he mentions the uncircumcised and the circumcised. So three things said there. Last three things we're going to cover today, but here they are. We're told three things about circumcision. It's a sign, it's a seal, and it's a way that God intended to preach the gospel. So first, it's a sign. You've heard us say before that most often in the Bible, when God made a covenant with men, he gave a sign of the covenant, like in Noah's day, okay? God made a covenant that he will never destroy the earth by flooding again. And then God put a sign. What was the sign? The rainbow. What does the sign do? It symbolically pictures the meaning. Does that make sense? So God had executed judgment and he gives humanity a sign like the like the warrior hangs his bow up because he's done. God has executed judgment and hung his warrior's bow for the time being because he's done. The sign points to the meaning of the covenant, just like baptism is the sign of the new covenant. And we talked about the pictures, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and our death, burial and resurrection as new believers. The sign points to the meaning. Secondly, Circumcision was a seal. Now the meaning is similar here, but there's a little bit of a difference. A seal is meant to guarantee something. Uh, when a king pressed his seal into a letter, it was to guarantee that when it was opened, it was the untampered words of the king. When a box is sealed, we do that to ensure its contents uh, arrive at their destination intact and uncorrupted. So what does that, what does that mean? Well, notice the wording. A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. So do you see what circumcision was intended to be? The constant practice throughout the years, every time a, a, a male boy, a little boy was born on the eighth day, he was circumcised and the family would celebrate that constant practice that constant having it before their eyes was an ongoing way of preaching these truths and calling out them to see you must be circumcised of heart. The circumcision of flesh pointed to the need of circumcision of the heart. But the people twisted it. Do you do Watch this. They twisted it to say the exact opposite. Isn't that wild? They twisted it to say the exact opposite. That's what's oftentimes done with the ordinances of God. Well, lastly, circumcision was given as another way for God to preach the gospel. All of this was done intentionally in these exact ways so that Abraham could be the father of all who believe. You notice the way that it's worded there? He's the father of those who believe and they're not circumcised, so that means they're not Jews. They're Gentiles, they're from the nations, probably most of us by birth in this room. And then in verse 12, he goes on to say, and he's also the father, not just of those who are circumcised, but of those who follow in the steps of the faith. So here's what it means. Those who are physically Jews, but have not turned to Christ. Yeah, Abraham is their father in a way, but not in the way that counts. The way that counts is spiritually. He is the father of all who believe. Now, even as I say that, you could be sitting there going, all right, that's great, but what does it matter whether or not Abraham is my spiritual father? What matters is promises that God has made to Abraham. God has promised to Abraham and to his descendants, to his seed, promises like inheriting the world. Eternal life, part of which we will be getting into as we go. But here is the conclusion the Bible is saying here. All who trust in Christ, regardless of ethnicity or background, you are children of Abraham. So Christian, looked at some things that maybe haven't been a part of Bible studies you've done in the past. Probably believe salvation by faith. Here God is going into kind of some complicated arguments to show these things. Let's take the note of fight for the purity of the gospel. Keep going and understanding it. Never stop battling for the purity of the gospel. And if you've not yet turned to Christ for this first time to be saved, I'm sure that some of the things we've looked at today are the exact contradiction to what you've heard most of your life and maybe even from the churches that you've been a part of. Constantly telling you you're good or do these religious deeds. But here is the Bible telling you nothing that you bring in your hands will make you right with God. It is Christ and Christ alone. I know there's a dilemma either to believe the Bible or to believe maybe even people you love from your past, from your history. Believe the word of God. He calls to you the soul that trusts in Christ will have eternal life. Look to him and be saved. Let's close. Oh God in heaven, thank you for your truths. I thank you, God, that there are passages that are light and easy. And I thank you, God, that there are ones that are hard that make us think. I thank you that there are ones that bring us deep. So Father, we praise you for your word. I ask God, give us understanding of these things. Make us to be a people who are obedient. Make us to be a church family that is clear about the gospel, that upholds the gospel, that fights for the purity of the gospel and makes known the true message of Christ. Any hero God that has not yet turned to you, please God, draw them. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.
0: Thanks for listening, and we hope you were deeply impacted by this week's message titled, Abraham and David Saved by Faith. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.